Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So recently, Swami, you and I got to attend the 14th All New York City Conference, which was awesome. This one had a trauma theme this time around, and it was full of excellent talks on topics like pediatrics, trauma, better documentation, delayed intracranial hemorrhage, anticoagulation. It was just like chock full of good stuff. So I thought today we could bring some pearls from a couple of those talks. What do you think? Now, it sounds great. This is a fantastic conference. For those of you who are not in the New York area, I've never seen this before. It's 500 residents from the 20 plus residencies around the area, and we get the best speakers from the area as well. So absolutely fantastic. Nice trauma theme. And you're right. There were some great talks here. So let's focus in on two and I'll let you start it off. Okay, so let's start with a few pearls from a talk on damage control resuscitation by Dr. Billy Caputo from Staten Island. Now, in his talk, I loved it because Billy gave really tangible tips for improving your resuscitation of a hemorrhaging patient. So first off, he talked about how appropriate access is really crucial. And we all know that, but we have to hammer that in all the time. We need this to get volume back in the patients. Now, his tips here were to use your best people on the team to work access. It's so simple, but it's it's so crucial. It's a time-sensitive procedure. It needs to be done right and it needs to be done quickly. So the nurse or doc that's in the room who's best at getting a peripheral line should be working on that. And he also reminded us that the injury shouldn't transect the IV access point. So if you're thinking you want to drop a femoral intro, but you suspect a pelvic fracture, think again. You don't want the injury going right over where you're putting in a line. I love that pearl of getting skilled people on the IVs. And of course, if you can't get an IV, go to IO, start that resuscitation, and then you can think about, hey, maybe I need to get a central line. And Billy gives a nice tip with central lines as well. He says, if you're putting a chest tube into one side of the chest, that is a free shot to put a subclavian in the same place. There's no more worry about maybe I'm going to drop a lung because you already put a chest tube in. That doesn't mean that you can be careless about your subclavian placement, but it should motivate us to go for it. Yep, I totally agree. Next, he reminded us to give tranexamic acid. Jenny, this is something that we've talked about on the podcast quite a bit. We can refer people back to the podcast that you gave for the All New York City Talk a couple of years back, focusing on why we should give TXA, which patients should we be giving it in, and how much should we give. But one of the nice pearls that Billy keys in on, and this was probably my favorite pearl from the whole day. I think we often can get lost thinking about what's the dose, what's the dose, and then uh, since I don't know the dose, I'm not going to do it. And he said, you know what? The dose of tranexamic acid, the dose that we as emergency physicians need to be giving is the same as the dose of cefazolin that you give to trauma patients. And that's something that we do all the time. Cefazolin, one gram. TXA, one gram. And it was best that we give that TXA within three hours. The second dose of TXA is going to be an infusion over time. That's something that's going to fall onto the trauma surgeons to do. And not that we are abdicating our responsibilities, but at least let's get that first gram in up front. And then we can give the rest of it later on after we have time to look up and make sure that we have the right dose. But the key here is that in a major trauma, any patient where you're activating massive transfusion or you're giving more than maybe just a unit of blood, give a gram of TXA and it matches the dose for your cefazolin. One gram TXA, one gram cefazolin. Yeah, it's like you can offload the thinking because you just remember it's a gram of each. That's right. So the last little pearl from this talk is another great one. And he laid out something that, again, is so obvious and yet not something we think about. And that is that making massive transfusion happen right is a two-person job. You need one person who's actually doing the transfusing. That means hanging up the bags of blood. This is the transfuser. 
but you need a second person. You need a runner, a person to go back and forth from the blood bank and the recess room. Now, this person should ideally be able to move quickly and safely, but crucially, they need to know where the blood bank is. So think ahead of time about who you might assign this job in the moment so you're not scrambling to figure it out when you need to get those products quickly. I think we talk about massive transfusion protocol a lot, but we often think about the strategy and we don't clearly spell out the logistics and that's where we get trapped. This is a fantastic example of working on those logistics. Additionally, if you've got the ability, you should simulate massive transfusion protocol in your hospital. So run a in-situ simulation to see how it actually works when you activate massive transfusion. And then you can see where the hangups are, where there are issues, and you can get past those during the simulation so that when the actual person comes in that needs the massive transfusion, you're ready to go. Now, Jenny, you wanted to talk about some pearls on documentation. So let's get into that next. Yeah, I want to talk about Mike Weinstock's talk on documentation disasters. And I love this talk. And I I love the way Mike teaches about documentation because it makes you be a better doctor because you're a better documenter. And I love that. And he pointed out that we spend twice as much time documenting as we do with patients, which is just sad and absurd. But since it's such a huge part of our job and it's probably not really going away, because it does serve some important functions, we need to spend some time thinking about how and why we do it and how we can do it better. The first pearl Mike has is about the chief complaint. Here, he reminded us to make sure we address the patient's chief complaint, even if it's different from what they actually describe in their history. For example, if the chief complaint is fever, but when you talk to the patient, all they do is talk about how bad their shoulder hurts, be sure and go back and ask them about that issue of fever. Shoulder pain in and of itself has one diagnosis. Shoulder pain plus fever has a very different differential diagnosis. You need to clarify those things. This needs to be addressed both in your history taking and in your chart. The second great pearl was to make sure your HPI is actually a true history of present illness. So remember those PQRST questions we all learned back in medical school, like provocative, provocative and palliative factors, quality, all that stuff? We actually learned that for a reason, because asking those questions should be helpful in assessing the complaint. And if you're asking them, which I know you're doing, you need to document that you did. So this is important for a couple of reasons. First, God forbid the case is one of those that goes to court for malpractice reasons. You're probably not going to remember the patient at all. It's quite possible you might not remember the patient at all. We see so many patients. You need to document well to remind yourself who they were and what you did. And then also, it just doesn't look like you took a thorough history if you don't write it in the chart. It seems like you didn't really think the case through if the history isn't flushed out. So I can't tell you the number of times I see HPIs where I heard the person taking the HPI. I know they asked all the questions and then the HPI is like, you know, chest pain, no shortness of breath, very little else in it. And what? Tell me more about the chest pain. Where is it? Where does it radiate to? How does it feel? When did it start? Have you ever had it before? All that stuff is really important to show that you thought about the patient. And Jenny, when you reiterate those things into your chart, when you type them out, all of those features, you may actually move towards different diagnoses as you're writing it again. This is part of our thought process. So you're right. It's key. It's not just about the med mal. That's not what we should be concerned about. We should be concerned about taking the best care of the patient in front of us. And by writing all those things down, it does help our minds start to wrap itself around that differential. Absolutely. In the writing, you're doing the rethinking. 
Exactly. So one last good documentation pearl, and this is exactly what we're getting to, the medical decision-making or the MDM. Mike's tip was to use the MDM as a hard stop for yourself. Avoid just restating the elements of the history. It's redundant. It's a waste of space. It's a waste of your time. The MDM should not just be a restatement of everything that you got, everything that you already put in the chart. It should really be answering the important questions. Use the MDM to convince yourself that the plan that you have is the right one, that it's the correct correct pathway to take. Explain your thinking and decisions as though you are convincing yourself. If you can't convince yourself, maybe you need to rethink the way you're evaluating that patient. I'll often see MDMs that are simply a restatement of the history and then a list of things that the person wants to do. A list of the orders. You know, so the MDM says chest pain, EKG labs reassess or something like that. You know, EKG chest x-ray labs. And the orders aren't a plan and orders aren't a thought process and orders aren't an assessment. So the MDM allows you to reason through a differential diagnosis and explain how or what and why you're doing these things that you're doing. Orders show up elsewhere in the chart. Now, I don't I don't think that the order shouldn't be in the in the MDM because I do think from communicating doctor to doctor it is an easy place for the the next doctor to know what you did. So I don't mind seeing them there, but orders in of themselves are not an MDM. Right. Simply because you wrote, oh, I'm going to get a D-dimer does not mean you were thinking about PE. What I'd rather see there in a chest pain patient is addressing the dangerous diagnoses, ACS, dissection, and pulmonary embolism based on the information you've gathered. I think the patient is low risk for ACS because I think the patient is low risk for aortic dissection because I'm very concerned about pulmonary embolism in this patient because that's what yep. MDM should be. And again, this is part of convincing yourself that you are going in the right direction. All right, that's all for the CoreEM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, Falls on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week. <laughs>